Welcome to Meanwhile, episode 21. Today, Michael and I talk about the inner stories and narratives that we all tell. We discuss how we make meaning and significance in our lives, not so much from the things that happen to us, but rather from the narratives we tell ourselves to interpret those things and events. We use this episode to expose the little narrator we all have in our heads and to explore techniques that showcase how that voice does and does not serve us. Let's get started. Greetings, Earthlings. Hola. (laughs) Michael Melcher here on the rainy, snowy, sleety East Coast. That's how we like to bring in the holiday season. It is so Christmassy, I'm sure. It is just sunny, sunny California out here in San Francisco. Good to be back with you, my man. Yes, we have um, been away a few weeks. Uh, We have some technical difficulties, but we are now (laughs) doubling down. We're committing. We don't have any bad competing commitments that we're aware of in this podcast it's one of the great joys in our life and we are goddamn gonna share that joy with you more frequently it is the holiday season let the joy floweth forth my friend flowing forth like things okay today we have a super exciting and useful exercise that is gonna change your life it's called narratives and alternative narratives you heard it here first and we're gonna we're just gonna lay it on you really quickly and then spend the remainder of our podcast unspooling all the various levels and layers and little curlicues and baroque touches that make it so powerful. That's but good. let me let me let me tell you how this was born. Many years ago, when I was a youngster, I lived in India for a year. I was a foreign service officer when I was twenty three years old, and I was sent to Calcutta. It was kind of rough in a lot of ways. Um, I traveled a lot, but this seemed different. Uh, I lost a lot of confidence. I had a really weird job situation. I had a kind of creepy boss I wasn't really sure how to deal with. And, uh, you know, Calcutta is, it's, it's Calcutta. There's, there's a lot there, we can say. And in the middle of that, I got sick, really ill, and kind of made myself crazy for a couple of weeks. And then I gradually came out of it. But anyway, by the end, I was like, cool, I'm leaving Calcutta and India, where I'd spent nearly a year. And so for the next decade or two of my life, I carried this memory in my head of being kind of unhappy and really feeling like a failure in the sense of not being a great world traveler and this big dream of going into the foreign service, not really having worked out the way I wanted to. And, you know, generally lots of not particularly great messages about this year that I spent there. Hmm. Fast forward 18 years later, I decided to go back to India. And I went with my mom and my friend Cheryl wanted to come. And so we went there. We went to Bombay and Delhi and uh, South India and Rajasthan, a lot of the usual places, not Calcutta. That might have been too much. And here's the thing. I had a fantastic time. I had one of the trips of my lifetime. I felt very comfortable there. I mingled with people. I kind of knew what to do. I was thrilled at how improved everything was from my perspective, how much better off the country was. Uh, Some may debate that, but that's what my perception was. Mm -hmm. And then I um, saw this friend of mine, Ranjana, who at the time I had met her in Calcutta, she was like this innocent country girl who was studying in Calcutta. And then 18 years later, she was like this big businesswoman of the world who lived in Bombay and had 
a huge staff and flew to Singapore every week and blah, blah, blah. And we stayed at her house and we would sit around and just talk about our memories. And as it sometimes is with like college friends, you just say one thing and it just makes you explode in laughter. Mm -hmm. So we talked about my neighbor Carlos and his girlfriend Carolyn and how she had these books of poetry she was constantly trying to get our library to take and we just like laugh about that and then how I had a sale once of all my like imported merchandise since you get all this crap you can bring in through the foreign service and then like my boss and then the assortment of people who were staying at this kind of youth hostel that they were at which was I can't remember what it was called, but we nicknamed it the Swami Ramayama Ding Dong Institute for Higher Meditation and Hotel Management. And we would <laughs> That's a mouthful. Just, yeah, we just sort of mention these things and just start cracking up almost to the point of crying. Like it was just so funny to share these memories. It was the, the best. best. And so I just had this beautiful, affirming, wonderful experience. And I got back and I'm like, you know what? I'm really glad I lived in India. And you know what? I, I actually did a pretty bang up job of dealing with a situation was difficult in a lot of ways. And I learned a lot about myself and I learned a lot about the world. And I kind of got to know India before most people in America were really kind of aware, you know, pre the uh-huh. big Silicon Valley pop. And I had this, these wonderful friendships that lasted nearly two decades later. And I thought, man, why was I carrying around all this negative crap for the last 18 years? It's a long time. It's a long time to feel that you're kind of a failure or had a bad experience Mm -hmm. or didn't do things right or didn't manage to live up to it. And it was really all unnecessary. Like I could have had a different way of looking at it, but I didn't quite have the presence of mind to lift myself into that. And then that made me wonder, in what other areas of my life am I carrying around narratives that not only don't serve me, but might actually be wrong? that I might have drawn the wrong conclusions from. So that then leads into our exciting exercise. And uh, I will explain it in brief, and then we'll give a couple of examples. And then we'll talk about how this will change your life. So the idea (laughs) is narratives and alternative narratives. So you take a piece of paper and make a two-column table, and you label the left-hand current narrative and the right-column alternate version. So on the left-hand side, you just write a number of statements about yourself, about your life, about how you feel about things. Um, These may tend to be negative or ambivalent because that's what we're working with. Write all those down, get them all out. In the first time I did this, I had 10, each of which was like a paragraph. And then on the right-hand side, you write alternative versions. So for each of these, you start with a statement, I could easily make an alternative narrative that... And then you fill that in. Okay? So I'll give you a couple of examples. I did this uh, during the pregnancy of my twins that I've referred to before, where I was stressed out all the time. And so one of my current narratives was, I'm supposed to be joyous and happy all the time during this period, and I'm supposed to tamp down fears, doubts, or insecurities. That's actually how I felt. I felt really lame that I was not more happy. Then I wrote, I could easily make an alternative narrative that every expecting parent goes through an enormous amount of stress in trying to have kids, and no one is expecting me to be some kind of miracle person. Okay? Then I'll give you another one. I'm supposed to be the kind of person who has written about in the Stanford Business School, Graduate School of Business, Alumni Magazine, and in New York Times pieces about great successes of our age. <laughs> no pressure. Bit of a high standard. Yeah. <laughs> I wrote, 
I could easily make an alternative narrative that many people, including GSB classmates, find me highly original, accomplished, and inspirational, and doing work that is worthy of my training and talents. And I could also easily make an alternative narrative that all media splash pieces are kind of dumb and not really describing reality, and if I were in such vehicles, I would just describe them, dismiss them as irrelevant. So I love this exercise, Michael, and when we were working together a couple of years ago as coach and coachee, it was one of the first exercises we did that I remember feeling really kind of freed up by. And like, I got some really great insights into what we were working on at the time. And even as you were going through these examples, just now I realized, and in the prompts you sent me at the time, there there are some great Mad Libs we can all use to discover what these current narratives are. Um, You know, even the ones you just shared about when you were waiting for your, your kids to be born or looking at your fame and fortune next to your other other classmates, it's like they often have these shoulds or supposed tos or have, have tos in them. Like right now I have to X because. Right now I could never do Y because. Um, I really need to. I really ought to. It's like this little drill sergeant in our heads that's often like spouting off commands just beyond our field of awareness. And I remember just like sitting down, like you just said, making that two column table and like actually listing these things out, you know, it's sort of a powerful thing to do. Right. I remember sitting down and being like, Oh, I should really figure out a way to diversify the way that I'm getting new clients. Because if I don't, my practice will never be world-class. Right. And I, and I think that there are two things going on. The first is that we carry around a lot more of these judgments and shoulds and, and narratives about what we're supposed to do that we tend to realize like we're consciously aware of some, but then they're just layers and layers and layers totally. of them, right? Yep. And alternately, when we actually get them out of our heads and write them down and then look at them, we can examine them a bit more dispassionately. They lose some of their force. And totally. in fact, some of them seem kind of absurd or, or ridiculous. Like, what kind of a crazy nut job am I to <laughs> demand this of myself every second? And then we can also access the kind of in a way, the critical, logical part of ourself to simply make an alternative argument. And the difference is that the right-hand column, they're not mantras. They're not, this is what you should believe, or mm-hmm. just write this down, you'll be happy. Right. It's more like, let's just balance this out. Let's see what's on the other side of the scale and kind of look at them together to figure out where the truth lies. So that's the exercise. We want everybody to do it. I've had a number of clients do this recently, and 201, they all found it quite useful, and then talk it up to their other friends, even though many of them resisted the idea at first, because it's not necessarily obvious how you would do this or what the value would be, but trust me, it will be very, very powerful. In fact, I kind of want to do this again for myself based on my current reality. I also noticed that the blog post you referred to was from January 2015. I think I just came up with this exercise a couple of weeks before that. And weird, that's like less than three years ago. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And the reason I did this was partly because I was feeling like a madman um, on multiple fronts during my kid's pregnancy. I I recognized that the way I was thinking and feeling and living was just not serving me. I I needed something different. Um, So it was founded in stress, but it became a really useful tool. Yeah. A lot of our big breakthroughs come when we experience our own overwhelming, (laughs) crushing pain or stress. Well, sometimes you you change because the pain is is intense so intense that you do. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And a lot of we don't because we can kind of live with it. Yeah. Well, I'm so glad you put it 
onto your the creative lawyer blog and then you mm-hmm. sent it to me as your client like probably a month or two after that um and getting a chance to do this um as i was working through the the challenges of growing my coaching practice at the time and but even now can realizing that i think the the essence of this exercise is what i spend a lot of my time doing when i'm trying to work on myself or help myself move out of stressful states as well as when i'm working with clients on similar issues. Even this week, for instance, I came back from, I was out for two weeks of vacation. I went on this great kite boarding trip with my brother and my dad. It's fantastic. When are, when are you not kite boarding with your <laughs> brother and dad? Um, basically, I'm always doing that. Yeah, it's just, it's just the thing that I do. I, this whole coaching thing is an illusion. <laughs> Pulling the wool over your eyes. We had this great trip to Mexico, subject for another podcast. But coming back, to the mountain of unread emails and the just litany of stacked to-dos, I realized that there's this subversive narrative that existed in the back of my head as I'm coming back. And it sounded something like, you know, coming back from vacation, Michael, you have to get through all of these emails and talk to all of your clients by the end of this week, even those you're not going to see for the next week or two. Otherwise, people are going to get upset and it'll be bad for business. Sort of this. That like, was little, your current narrative. Current narrative coming back on Sunday night. I was like, oh, I'm feeling kind of stressed out. There's this little, little drill sergeant flaring up in my subconscious. And did you write an alternative narrative? To I, that? Did. I did. <laughs> I did. As I happen to know, you use most of our prep session to do this entire exercise. <laughs> I, well, I do a lot of it just naturally now. I just do a lot of story reframing, narrative reframing in my head. But if I were to have taken a napkin from the Virgin America flight attendant and written an alternate narrative down, I it would have sounded something like, I could easily make an alternate narrative that slow and steady is the way to go. You're not a superhero. And the only way, in fact, you're going to get back into the swing of things is to do one thing at a time. In fact, reintegrating slowly and at a good pace could actually be a great example of self-compassion and boundary holding, both for, for yourself, but also for other people, including your clients who are often overworked, overstretched, and put undue pressure on themselves. Yes, that's a pretty good summary of our client base. Yes, um, yes. So this is the exercise, everybody. Do it. You'll love it. Um, write to us and tell us what you came up with. But maybe let's talk about why this is so powerful and, and why it's necessary. And, yeah, let's and, do that. and I'll start. So what is a narrative? A narrative is a story. It's something that gives meaning to like an experience or set of data. And we need stories to get through life because a lot of stuff is coming at us. In order to make sense of things, we have to create stories or narratives. So we decide what is the main point, what do we listen to, what do we not pay attention to, etc. However, when you include something, you automatically exclude something by definition. Mm-hmm. Um, including means... You're deciding what's on the inside, and you're essentially deciding what's on the outside. So we create a story. There's always stuff on the cutting room floor because we're taking a particular point of view. Mm -hmm. And I would further argue that prejudice itself is a type of narrative, right? It's a narrative with a lot of confirmation bias. So prejudiced people will notice certain things that confirm their beliefs, and they will choose not to notice other things that get in the way of their beliefs. Right. But we all have stories. We all have narratives. It is equal to the human condition. The thing is, we rarely question our narratives, and some people don't question their narratives at all. Therefore, this exercise and a ton of other stuff that we do in coaching is essentially getting people to question your 
narratives. So in the immunity to change training that we have both gone through, the originators of that talk about assumptions you have versus assumptions that have you. Get the difference? And so it's the same thing. It's a narrative you have versus a narrative that has you. So a narrative you have is a way of dealing with reality and kind of explaining things and drawing meaning. A narrative that has you is something that is keeping you stuck and it's keeping you from noticing other things and it is limiting your capacity to take in other information. A lot of the stuff that we do in coaching and related fields kind of goes to this point of questioning what our narratives are. For example, Myers-Briggs type indicator and the whole Jungian idea of type, this is that there are different ways of processing reality, different ways of thinking. We tend to think our version is a correct way and that other people are kind of wrong. But when you understand these four different um, preference sets that yield like 16 different types, you can adjust to other people. You can sort of see other people as just different rather than wrong. And then you may even be able to stretch yourself in order to kind of accommodate them. Similarly, something like the Enneagram, nine different personality types. Each one has like a default way of seeing the world, a kind of default strategy for dealing with life's pains, questions, etc. When you become aware of your default style, then it is possible to kind of get out of that narrative trap. And there are a bunch of other types of exercises and tools that that go along this as well. Yeah. Well, I, I, I love it. The reason I love the exercise is it's so simple and it does really get at the heart of so many of these tools. You know, in one of our previous episodes, the one on emotion regulation, we talked about this ABC method from cognitive behavioral therapy and this idea of noticing when we're in a really heightened, particularly negative emotional state, what is the story we're telling ourselves? What is the narrative that's playing often on repeat, often with certain confirmation biases, as you just alluded to, that's leading us into this high state of stress or anxiety or anger or resentment or overwhelm, right? So it, it shows up in so many tools and so many methods. And at its heart, I think this something about just creating a two-column table and listing these things out is, is so simple. And yet I found it to be so powerful. And one of the things that you were just talking about, Michael, that I, I wanted to just highlight once more is this idea of the difference between narratives you have versus narratives that have you. And going back to some of the immunity to change stuff we often reference, earlier you said just writing down these current narratives can almost be a, a liberating step where you can sort look at it and be like, well, that's pretty harsh or that's exaggerated or in some ways this is absurd. And, and the act of just even writing it down in this simple two-column thing is transitioning our narratives oftentimes from having us playing out in our subconscious just creating up, kicking up all sorts of dust and shit. Now, all of a sudden, being out on paper, we, we sort of have them in a way. It's like, well, there you are, little drummer boy who's just been marching around in the back of my brain. What do I think of you? And now, all of a sudden, we have a new degree of um, sort of utility. And we we're a little bit, we empower ourselves a little bit to be like, well, do I want to edit this story? Could I at least consider alternate versions? And the thing I love about this exercise in addition, Michael, is sometimes you'll have, I remember you having me do this once where it's not just what's the current story or the current narrative and then create one alternate. But sometimes I remember you having me create, and this was a real great push. You said, create eight alternate narratives just to say, not that like, let's pick the rosiest one, but let's just consider what else could be possible ways to interpret these events or to, to make sense of this data. It's really yeah. powerful. 
Well, that's, that's uh, I'll give you another label, the Perspectives Wheel, yes. um, which is a common coaching tool. I believe it comes from CTI, Coaches uh, Training, Training Institute. Institute. A simple way of doing this is you take a kind of thing going on, like an issue, a feeling, a conclusion, and you take a piece of paper and you draw a big circle that fills the paper, more or less, and then you divide it into eight pizza slices. And so you take your, your issue. So I'll give a very simple one. My kids are going to Montessori School in Northampton, Massachusetts, and we love it. And yesterday, I brought them in to drop off, and um, it was kind of snowing. And the teacher said, do they have snow boots and snow pants? And, of course, it did not because I had not packed them. I hadn't thought of really doing that, and I wasn't even sure they fit. Such a city boy. Yeah, and so I felt bad, and mm. I also felt kind of criticized, mm. right? So that could be my my situation. It's a very simple one, right? Yep. Like Montessori drop-off. Did not pack snow pants and and shoes for my twins. Yes. So first pizza slice is, wow, I feel really inadequate and also criticized. Okay? Yep. That's my perspective. Yep. You can say, well, what's another perspective you could have? I could say, well, it is uh, the first time it snowed this year. It came late. So I'm, you know, I'm kind of getting my act together, and the next time it'll be fine. By the way, I now remember when we did this. It was when I was in Mexico City. Yeah, we're talking about my Mexico City trip. Yes, we did something similar. Um, yes. What's another perspective? Another perspective is the Montessori teachers probably said the same thing twelve times today because that's what you say on the first day of snow. Did you bring your snow pants and snow boots and whatever? Yeah. What's another perspective? Um, another perspective could be I'm always behind. I'm never quite on it. I haven't been trained to do this. I have too many things going on. If it's not this, it's not another, right? Yep. Dark one, right? Yep. Another perspective could be, they're outgrowing all their clothes. I need to go buy a bunch of new stuff, but I hate shopping. But I have to do it anyway. Okay, Mm -hmm. that's kind of a downer. Mm -hmm. Another perspective is, you know what? They're rugged children, so they get wet or messy or what have you. That's childhood. Yeah, <laughs> I believe yeah. in building resilience. <laughs> okay, whatever. And you kind of go on and on. And then as you go through this, you, it, it's interesting. The first four come quickly, and then you really have to dig. Right. And you tend to either have to dig either in like a negative direction or a positive direction or kind of a far out direction. And that's why it can be helpful to do this with a partner because we can often be so concentrated in our perspectives that we can't even see beyond. But eventually you get like eight, and you kind of go around it, and you ask yourself, okay, which of these is most true? And then which do you want to have? Because the idea is that we can make a choice about how we're interpreting certain things. And then that choice we make will determine how we think and that will determine how we feel. And that will then later determine how we act. Mm -hmm. And I would just say in this example, the most powerful thing is like, yeah, it's the first day. Okay, now I know. Done. Yeah. (laughs) It's not a big deal. Um, (laughs) Onward and upward. But it's the same type of questioning our – Narrative. Absolutely. And and the thing I like about this version of it, this perspectives wheel or this push to create, you know, five, six, seven, eight alternate narratives is that, and something you alluded to was sometimes when we put that first narrative down, the current narrative, the, the harsh one, the one that's really got us struggling, it can be a very like strong, boisterous narrative that's kind of hard to move beyond. Because it's so ingrained sometimes. It's like, no, well, this it's is one. This... It's like one the Hunger Games in our head. Yes. It's killed all the other ones. Exactly. <laughs> it it's came out of the, uh, that water thing on that platform. Right. And it just killed everybody. That really big sh- seashell shaped, you know, <laughs> thing with all the, yeah, you know what I'm talking about. Shout out to Jennifer Lawrence. And so, exactly. It's this, it's the strongest narrative that's killed all the other ones. And so at first it's going to say, yeah, there aren't really any other ones. Or, yeah, there are, but they're weak. 
right? And so sometimes when we just come up with one alternate narrative, we can almost be cynical about it and be like, yeah, yeah, yeah. But if we force ourselves eventually to identify, okay, that's the second one, the third one, the fourth one, all of a sudden it starts to stand, the, the prevailing harsher narrative that we're struggling with maybe starts to stand amongst eight or 10 other ones. We have new choices available to us and we can confront these ways of interpreting our lives and what's going on in them in new ways that are hopefully powerful, freeing. And like when you asked yourself that question that you just said, which is, or which pieces of these seem most true slash, which do I want to have? What sense do I want to make of this? Well, what you're saying in a way is that we could be very loyal to our existing narratives, yes. including yes. to the existing narratives that make us feel like shit. Totally. Um, I once heard that like in addiction counseling, they tell you, you know, you're very loyal to your addiction. Mm. Like you find ways to just insist that it be in your life. And I think we're very loyal to our shitty <laughs> narratives. Mm. I'm not sure why, but they've just been around a long time. They've won the Hunger Games. And so we kind of give them a primacy of place. And totally. if you ask somebody to challenge their narrative, they, they might fight you on it. They may um, resist. I don't know. It's because if they're in love with it or if they're – just don't believe there's any alternative or it's been around so long it's hard to fight. But really what these exercises do is they create a little bit more space. It's not like we're instantly saying, okay, get rid of that narrative. It's more like, let's just draw this out a little bit more. Let's just open up some space. It's kind of like a good, you know, triangle pose or something. <laughs> just open up that back. And then allowing us to have the slight distance and time and almost relaxation to look at it from the side and be a little bit detached is, I think, how we get out of it. So, um, you know, in the immunity to change training, they get down to what's called the big assumption. This mm -hmm. is sort of the thing, the underlying assumption that is creating the logic that prevents you from moving forward in your goals, basically. Right. And they don't say, oh, once you have that assumption, just say, Get out of here, you stupid assumption. We, I hate you. You're dumb. Right. Forget it. Instead, they say, find ways to explore it and look at it. Like, find some safe experiments. Find some ways to test it where you can kind of see, is this still relevant? You know, is this something I really want to live with? Does it hold up when I really examine it? Mm -hmm. And maybe it doesn't. Mm -hmm. And that is a more powerful way than to just kind of try to force yourself into a new way of thinking. Absolutely. I, you know, if I come back to my narrative for this week of getting back into work and kind of going one item at a time and slow and steady, as opposed to, oh my God, email all your clients in the first two days and reestablish connection and let everyone know you're alive. The, the experiment would be, okay, let me try this narrative that I, I, I notice myself wanting to choose this sort of slow and steady, one thing at a time. You're not a superhero. It's going to be fine. In fact, could be a great example of boundary holding to just slowly reintegrate. Let me try that and let me sort of notice what that experience is like. So collect the data for myself like, huh, how stressed am I? How much am I enjoying being back home in blustery San Francisco as opposed to on the beach in Mexico? How are my clients responding and how are my conversations with them going? And you know, if I had been looking at this as from a testing standpoint, I got a great email yesterday from a client who 
said, emailed me saying, Hey, I saw you're out of office while you were gone. So proud and happy to see you didn't get back to me and you held that boundary. <laughs> you know, repinging you to put this in your queue, knowing that you probably got a lot this week. Um, can't wait to catch up. You know, so cool just to see some version of this alternate narrative that I could have, you know, I haven't intentionally designed this test, but let's say I had, yielding some results that may surprise my my default narrative, that that current narrative for me when I was flying back on Sunday night saying, ah, do it all and do it all in the next 12 hours. Right. And then a key part to retaining this is to make yourself see what's actually happening. So it's kind of... Mm-hmm. Based on my narrative, what did I predict would happen? Right. Right. So I predicted that I would have to battle these emails and people would be really upset and pissed off if I didn't and I need to do it. Okay, what actually happened? Well, this client reached out with this really thoughtful, kind message that I did not even ask for. Yeah. And conveyed this. Okay, what does that tell me about my narrative? Uh, Yeah. My narrative was kind of did not allow for this, so maybe it's wrong. Yeah. Because I, I do think we have to force ourselves to notice the things that disprove our narratives. Because mm-hmm. um, otherwise, we'll just forget it. And then the next time you go on a trip, you'll be back in the same thing. Like, totally. oh, I better do these emails. So it's it's in the place I went to coaching school, the Hudson Institute of Santa Barbara, they talk about both learning and unlearning. Mm. So over time, how do we unlearn these limiting ways of looking at ourselves? Yeah, yeah. All right. I think that's all I got on this today. Well, I love it. It's been so good to be back on the bandwagon with you, my friend. We are so on that bandwagon, and the world better watch out, because there's going to be a lot of amazing podcasts ahead. In this wagon's a rolling, baby. This it's wagon a is a rolling. All right. Bye-bye. See you, man.